Welcome to the Cleansing Word Podcast with Pastor John of Calvary Chapel, Lake Villa. Join us as we go through the Bible as we encourage your walk with Jesus Christ. If you'd like to know more about Calvary Chapel, Lake Villa, visit us at cclv.org and please share and subscribe to this podcast. Now let's hear a message from God's Word. Another thing that happened this past week before we get into our teaching. So we've been doing for two years the chronological journey through the Gospels, Lesson 75 today, and trying to compile all the information of the four Gospels into uh, a storyline that works. is very difficult to do, as I've mentioned that several times. I am sure I've gotten parts of it wrong, um, but this is a pretty... Uh, consistent portion of scripture here, but what I wanted to mention, uh, I'm broadcast on WHLP in Indiana, so the Calvary Radio Network on Saturdays, and I think Sunday they rebroadcast it, but I began our chronological study through the gospel on WHLP yesterday, um, and it took me two years to do it, because when you start doing radio messages, um, you need a lot of messages to broadcast on the radio. And so uh, just preparing for that for our own radio station, we'll go from uh, WHLP. And when we finish out our current series of going through the New Testament on WLGS, we'll pick up on the chronological gospel. So I was I was kind of excited about that. And uh, you can keep that in prayer as the word of God goes out. Someone emailed me last week and it's like, we have a believe. well, they said not a believer, but close to being a believer. What book of the Bible would you suggest that they should read? And so it's like the Gospel of John, that's the go-to. And there's nothing wrong with going through the Gospels. And so that excites me about the radio. We're talking about Jesus, and we pray that God blesses that when we broadcast, whether in our church radio station or the other radio stations we're able to broadcast on. So we're in the chronological Gospels, and it brings us to the final week of Christ. And uh, Easter is coming up at the end of March, and every time we go through the final week of Christ during Easter celebration, we kind of go through a bit of these things, and we go through fairly quickly in a week's time from Sunday to Sunday. We'll talk about Palm Sunday. We'll spend the week together in prayer and fasting here at our church, and uh, we'll have our message on Easter Sunday morning talking about the resurrection of Christ. And we do that in kind of a quick little week of teaching. But actually, John's gospel, um, he's only in chapter 12. So he's got a bit of gospel to go. And uh, Luke, he goes to chapter 24. He's in 19. At this point, Mark goes to chapter 16. As far as his gospel is concerned, he's in chapter 11. And we have Matthew who um, I believe he's in chapter 20, he goes through 28. And so we have a bit of teaching going on, and I spent Monday mapping out a bit of the final week from the Sunday that we're going to look at today of the triumphal entry and going into a bit of Monday and Tuesday. And many scholars believe that Wednesday was a quiet day, but uh, we'll work that through. There was a lot of teaching that Jesus did. He talked with parables, and he told about end-time events. When will be the sign of your coming? The disciples would ask him during this final week. And we're going to look at all of that, and we're going to take our time doing it. And so I'm kind of looking forward to kind of slowly going through this ending of the chronological Gospels with you. And it's going to end on a good note that Jesus has resurrected, he's ascended to heaven, and he's coming again. I mean, that's just like, and they lived happily ever after. <laughs> we're heading there, but we're not there yet. This is talking about the triumphal entry of Christ, and he has done some very great things prior to this. We have learned about the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead, who had been dead for four days, about two blind men that were healed there in the town or near Jericho, we studied about the salvation of Zacchaeus and his household, who is also of Jericho, and how the rulers, 
had put out word, if anyone knew where Jesus was, that they should report it because they wanted him arrested. There was a plot by the religious rulers against Jesus, and not only against Jesus, but because many people believed, not only seeing Jesus, but Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead, many were coming after Jesus, and so they wanted both Jesus and Lazarus put to death. I don't know if they ever succeeded with putting Lazarus to death, but they did succeed with Jesus. And so today we're going to look at the triumphal entry. It's recorded in Matthew 21, 1 through 11, Mark 11, 1 through 11. We're looking at Luke 19, 28 through 44 today. And uh, John also, John 12, 12 through 19. Every gospel writer talks about this event. That's a rarity when you're going through the gospels. Usually Matthew, Mark, and Luke, no problem for the synoptic gospels to talk about a related event and give a, maybe a little different vantage point from the other gospel writers. But even John gets in on this one, which tells me this is something that's important for us to know. I titled this, Your King is Coming. And I took it right from the pages of Scripture. And we're going to look at in our first point, Luke 19, 28 through 36. In my notes it says 40. I knew that was wrong. Luke 19, 28 through 36, a donkey's colt. Hosanna in the highest, Luke 19, 37 through 40. And Jesus weeps over Jerusalem, Luke 19, 1 through 44. And I'll go ahead and get us into the context of this passage. And we'll begin reading in verse 28 down through 31. The Word of God tells us, And when he had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And it came to pass that he came near to Bethphage and Bethany, on the mount called Olivet, that he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village opposite you, where as you enter, you'll find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Loose him and bring him here. And if anyone asks you why you are loosing him, thus you shall say to him, because the Lord has need of him. So here Jesus begins by pointing out to his disciples of an unbroken donkey's colt. And that's significant to me in the sense of uh, even... Jesus being able to ride upon this colt. If you know anything about horses or mules or donkeys, they can be stubborn. And uh, they're not quite accustomed to people sitting on them. They have to get used to it. And yet we'll find that Jesus will have no issue with it. I don't think all the disciples were like around a corral at that point, standing on the fence watching Jesus break this colt. <laughs> saying Yahoo in the process of that probably didn't happen that way. I think there was a submission even of this animal to our Savior Jesus. But we begin with this section, and this is something you should just know, you should have this down in your head. Whenever you read in the Gospels about going to Jerusalem, and it's here in verse 28, it says, He went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. Never in the Bible, do you read of anyone going down from Jerusalem? The direction to Jerusalem is always up. Now, they technically were going from Jericho to Jerusalem, which was a, a exchange of elevation from 3,400 feet. So literally, they were going up to Jerusalem. But the mindset is when you go to Jerusalem, because the temple was there, you were ascending to the temple of God. They were traveling up to Jerusalem. Beth, Bethphage, uh, we don't know where this city is today. We know where Bethany is as far as they've discovered the location of that. This is considered to be the village opposite Bethany where this cult was. The name itself means house of unripened figs and Bethany house of dates. And these were two small villages just right around two miles east of Jerusalem, there on the Mount of Olives. And this is where in Bethany we learn that Jesus stayed in his final week. Here's another 
fact from the Gospels, we never read of Jesus spending the night in Jerusalem. He may have. Scripture never records that he did. But in this final week, he always departed and went back to Bethany and then would return in the morning. And so we find that where he stayed was in Bethany. And as they traveled up from Jericho to Jerusalem, he did not immediately enter Jerusalem, but there staying in Bethany, John tells us in John 12, verses 1 and 2, six days before Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. There they made a supper, and Martha served, but Lazarus was one who sat with him at the table. We looked at that a few weeks ago. But we discover from John's gospel that he was actually there. It wasn't like as he was coming in, oh, by the way, go over to Bethany, fetch this donkey's coat that I can ride upon him as I come into the city. He was there almost a week prior, six days before, John says, Passover. And so it gives us a dating on this. Actually, I may have got that wrong just now in my head. This helps us actually date this final week, John gives us a clue. This is six days before Passover that they had this meal. The triumphal entry would be on uh, the Sunday. So this probably could be that Sabbath day meal that they were having at this meal at this time at the house of Simon the leper where they were eating at that time. At that time, we looked at this a few weeks ago. In John twelve three, a pound of very costly Oil, a spikenard, was anointed on the feet of Jesus by Mary as she wiped his feet with her hair. And again, we looked at that a few weeks ago. So this, most likely the Saturday before Passover, John writes, the next day, a great multitude that came to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So John takes us from that meal the next day into the triumphal entry. So we go from Saturday night to Sunday morning. I'm trying to catch up with my notes this morning. Forgive me. But th this is important because six days before, John tells us in John 12, 1, and then Mark will tell us, and we'll look at this beginning next week, and the next day. And Mark will say, and the next day. And so we get somewhat of a timeline, and it's hard to mesh it all together perfectly. But between John's gospel and Mark's gospel, they give us a little bit of a framework of this final week. The Mount of Olives is actually a ridgeline that's just east of Temple Mount. Temple Mount is on Mount Moriah. The Mount of Olives is east of there. Between them is the Kidron Valley. And in the Kidron Valley, and we'll talk about this, probably mention it a few times, maybe around Easter or as we go through, uh, a lot of times they would offer, like Josephus, who said that they offered, I believe, the number of 120,000 lambs for the Passover offering that he had recorded, um, that they would wash the altar with water and the blood in the altar would mingle together and run down the steps of the altar down into the Kidron Valley over which Jesus would have to go each time he left and came back to Jerusalem. And so this is a significant location in this final week of Christ. The Mount of Olives is about 100 feet higher than Mount Moriah at this point. And so you can sit up, and we did when we were in Israel. I mean, it's a bus stop. When they take you on the tour of Israel and you go to Jerusalem, they'll take you to the top of Mount of Olives and you can look in to Temple Mount. Sadly, that was as close as we got in the sense of there was some issues going on while we were there and they wouldn't let us go up on top of Temple Mount. So Loy and I never got to ascend the steps of that that's controlled by the Muslims today. But we got to look into it and to see Temple Mount from the Mount of Olives. So I can testify it is higher. You can look down, but it's a ridge line about two miles long east of Jerusalem. And there were olive groves there during the time of Christ. The Mount of Olives kind of makes sense. A lot of olive trees. There are some olive trees remaining that were there when Christ was there. They'll even take you to the Garden of Gethsemane and take you to the tree 
where they tell you this is where Jesus prayed that night. I don't know. They weren't there. We weren't there. The Bible doesn't give us the exact location of the tree. They'll show you a lot of places and say this is the spot. But we do know the age of the tree. It's over 2,000 years old. So we know the tree was there. So even that is so cool to even contemplate and to think about. Another thing that um, the contention between the Mount of Olives and Mount Moriah today, and this is somewhat humorous to me, the Jews have a graveyard. So they take you to the bus stop where it's a lookout point on the Mount of Olives. And just below that lookout point is a graveyard that goes down the hill there on the Mount of Olives with all the Jews who are buried there. They are buried facing Temple Mount. So the idea in the Jewish mind at the resurrection, they'll just pop up out of the grave and they'll be facing the temple already. On the other side, there is a Muslim graveyard. And the mindset of the Muslims is Jesus, when he returns, he's going to come in the eastern gate. They've blocked it up. They've removed the access. And they put a graveyard there to defile the possibility of that. Of course, the Bible tells us when Jesus does, and we'll read this text a little later, does descend upon the Mount of Olives at his return, that it will split from the east to the west. And I don't think any graveyard will trouble him whatsoever. So Jesus will find a way to get there. But the Temple Mount itself, a beautiful place, amazing that these olive trees remain to this day. And so if you're ever able to go, and I know right now nobody's booking trips, although I saw it advertised this week, come, it's safe. It's like you're in war. (laughs) If you're ever able to go and there's peace that we feel safe to go, what a trip there to see the places that we read about in Scripture. So it's mentioned in Zechariah 14:4. In that day, I said I would read this passage. I will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. The Mount of Olives shall be split in two from the east to the west, making a very large valley, half of the mountain being moved to the north, half being moved to the south. Christian tradition holds that when Jesus returns, his feet will touch down first upon the Mount of Olives, the point where he ascended to heaven, according to Acts 1, verses 11 through 12. The ascension took place from there. And so tradition holds that he's going to return in that place. We have another place where the Mount of Olives is mentioned in the Old Testament, although it's not mentioned a lot by name in the Old Testament. But David, when he fled Jerusalem, he went up the ascent by the Mount of Olives, which meant that he traveled that path from Jerusalem into the Kidron Valley, up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, 2 Samuel 15, 30. And it's a similar path that Jesus, the son of David, would travel on the night that he was betrayed and ultimately crucified on that next day. So the King of Peace, verses 32 through 36, it tells us, So those who were sent went their way. They found it just as Jesus said to them. But while they were loosing the colt, the owner said to them, Why are you loosing the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of him. And then he brought him to Jesus And they threw his clothes on the colt, and they sat Jesus on him. And he went, and many spread their clothes on the road. So five days before Passover, according to John's gospel, Jesus rode into Jerusalem on this unbroken donkey's colt. He presented himself to Israel as their king. Now some argue that Jesus had prearranged this whole thing that he had set up the use of this coat by the owner. They've made this prearrangement. If anybody asks, just say, oh, yeah, I have the receipt right here. Rent a coat. <laughs> they went to budget rent a coat. And... But I have no problem believing that the Lord who is over everything is able to supernaturally even release a coat to his service on that day. Jesus told his disciples even how to respond if questioned. The Lord has need of him. 
and they freely lent their colt to Jesus. Psalm 24.1 reminds us, The earth is the Lord's and all its fullness, the world and those who dwell within. After they returned with the colt, the disciples used their clothing. And this is when it talks about throwing their clothing down either on the colt or on the ground before Jesus, talking about their outer garments. And so they took their jackets, their coats, we would say their jackets, and they made a makeshift saddle for Jesus. And then many of Jesus' followers, those who had come down from the Galilee with him, they put out, we would say, the red carpet. They spread out their clothing, these outer garments, on the road before him. Matthew and Mark tell us that they cut down and laid leafy branches before them. And then John talks about branches of palm trees that they took with them as they went out to meet him on the road, John 12:13. So Palm Sunday comes from that palm tree branches there of John 12:13. Zechariah 9, 9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughters of Zion. Shout, O daughters of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding a donkey, a colt, a fold of a donkey. So here's an important thing. I said earlier that there are those who say that Jesus prearranged this whole thing. And so in saying that, they're actually claiming that Jesus is trying to take Old Testament prophecy about him and making it fit with the gospel story. And so he prearranged this thing that took place because Zechariah 9.9 testified of it. Again, I do not believe this. I believe that he who created the heavens and the earth is totally capable of releasing a donkey for his use on that day. But those who argue about the supernatural surrounding Jesus all always try to make an excuse, and this is one of those excuses they tempt, attempt to make. But we should note that Jesus didn't come as a conquering warrior on a white stallion as kings would do. The Bible tells us that he he came lowly, riding on a donkey, a colt, a foal of a donkey. And yet I don't picture Jesus as a soft man. As he entered into Jerusalem, maybe many of our films, especially it seemed like when they were making the films about Jesus maybe in the 1950s or 60s. These will be being played again on television or streaming services over the next month. But they show him, unlike, I wouldn't picture Jesus, a man who handled tools for a living into his 30s, of having like hands of a composer, or a guitar player. I don't know if you ever recognize hands like this. Lily and I were watching a boxing movie the other night, and the old boxer did a fist bump to the young boxer. And the old boxer's hand was so fat and wide in that fist bump, it looked like he was fist bumping a little boy. And this young boxer was supposed to be the next heavyweight champion of the world, and right there it told me he probably could not make it boxing in a ring today because his hands are too small. This was a man who had worked with tools in his life. He had strength physically, I would assume, just because of handling tools. <laughs> this week, my grandson and I and Kevin was there too, but really working on their vehicle and changing out spark plugs and wires and all this. And And I'm teaching my grandson, so it's like, okay, make sure it's in. Spark plug, you're putting it in. Twist it in as far as you can, and then we'll finish it with a wrench. And it's like, all right, it's done. And then I would grab it, and I would keep twisting. And I did that several times, and he's like, how? I said, these hands, hands of a bricklayer. (laughs) They have strength that you don't have yet. And yet, even if we... Lay aside the physical, whatever Jesus may have appeared like. Having all heavenly power, Jesus harnessed all this heavenly power 
in humility and gentleness and meekness, coming in the likeness of men, not on a white stallion as a conqueror, conquering warrior would do or a victorious king, but he came humbly, lowly, riding on a donkey, a colt, a foal of a donkey. Are we prepared? And that title, your king is coming. And I took that right from scripture, right from Zechariah 9, 9, but it's applicable today. Jesus is coming again. Your king is coming. And are we prepared for the coming of our king? Well, verses 37 through 40, as we continue to look at this passage, And it says, then as he was now drawing near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees, am I getting ahead? Nope. Some of the Pharisees called to him, to the crowd, saying, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he said to them, I tell you, if these should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. So the Bible's silent to the exact date of this. But personally, I believe... This is the 10th of Nisan. And the reason I believe that is because on the 10th of Nisan, it was the day that the children of Israel were to set aside the Passover lamb. Every household was to take a lamb. And they would keep it in their household for four days. And then on the fourth day, on the 14th, they would kill the lamb. All of Israel would kill it. Exodus 12.3 says, Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying on the tenth of this month, Every man shall take for himself a lamb according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And so there was in the final week of Christ this setting apart of the lamb for the Passover meals. I believe that this quite possibly, and I, I say this because I don't think God does anything by mistake. When he said to Abraham, take your son, your only son whom you love, and go to a mountain that's a three-day journey from here and offer him there on an altar to me, he said to him, I'll show you the mountain. You just go, I'll show you the place. He took him to Mount Moriah. I believe... And again, the Bible doesn't say that this is the exact location, but I believe the spot that God showed Abraham was the place where Jesus died for our sins. I don't think God does these things just by saying, oh, maybe it'll work out, maybe it won't. No, it's prophecies. He's got to reveal this stuff to us. And as John said in John 1, 29, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John said that at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. But there... And again, possibly on the 10th of Nisan, if so, it is called the Great Sabbath. The Lamb of God came into the city, in a sense, saying, Behold the Lamb of God. The multitude who followed Jesus, they rejoiced. They praised God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen. Those things that they'd just seen a few days earlier down in Jericho with blind Bartimaeus and another man receiving their sight with a very rich tax collector coming to salvation along with his whole household with his anointing that he had received. All these things caused the people to rejoice. They had seen Lazarus who had been resurrected from the grave. In John 12, 17, 18, and 19, it says, Therefore, the people who were with him, when he had called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, bore witness. For this reason, the people also met him, because they had heard that he had done this sign. And the Pharisees therefore said among themselves, See, you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. 
All these things that they had seen had caused the people to gather around Jesus and to say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The world is going after him. Oh, that the world would go after Jesus. In Psalm 118, 25 through 26, they quote this portion of scripture. Save now, in the Hebrew it's Hosanna, or a form of that transliteration of the Hebrew word. We translate it as save now. Hosanna, I pray, O Lord, O Lord, I pray, send now prosperity. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. They were singing out Hosanna, and this is part of the Hillel Psalms. Psalms 113 to 118. Psalms that were chanted by the people, but also rehearsed during Passover celebration. And Jesus coming into Jerusalem on a donkey's colt. It was a sign of peace as kings, high priests, judges, rich and poor. They all rode on donkeys where that conquering hero would come on a white stallion. And Jesus one day will come on that white stallion. But here he came in humility, gentleness, meekness and peace. It reminds us of a verse, I, a section of scripture I read often. In Philippians 2, 5 through 8, it says, Let this mind be in you that it was in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in the appearance as a man. He humbled himself. He came obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. To come in the name, come in the name of the Lord, refers to Jesus coming in the authority of God. Matthew tells us that this time that the whole city was moved. And it's a Greek word that means to shake, to agitate. It could be described as an earthquake was happening. Jesus shook the whole city as he came into the city at that time. Mark 11:10 says that they cried out, "Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that has come in the name of the Lord." Their shouts also agreed with the prophecies concerning the son of David that Jesus was coming as the son of David, the son of God. The people also cried out, "Peace in heaven and glory in the highest." Why would you have to cry out peace in heaven? Well, to me, it reminds me that there is a war ongoing. And at times, heaven is that battleground, and at times, the earth is the battleground. We read in the book of Daniel that there were archangels, Michael and Gabriel, battling against the prince of Persia, this taking place in the heavenlies. But now the battle was coming to Jerusalem, to Mount Moriah, and was beginning to rage. Satan was attempting to destroy God's only son, and little did Satan know his demonic forces, even the unbelieving Jews and Gentiles, that the path to victory for the heavenly host led its way through Calvary. Through the death of Jesus Christ in 1 Corinthians 15, 56 and 57, the sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And although Israel had been ruled over by other nations since their fall to the Babylonians nearly 500 years earlier, their hope was that Jesus was the coming Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah. And yet, just like his disciples, the people were looking for the Messiah of the second coming and not the first. They didn't understand why he was coming at that time. The Pharisees who were there called to Jesus saying, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And Jesus said, I tell you, that if they should keep silent, the stones would immediately cry out. 
The thought of creation speaking means that even creation knows what is taking place, and the Pharisees totally miss it. Psalm 98, 8 and 9 says, Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills be joyful together before their Lord. He is coming to judge the earth with righteousness. He will judge the world and the people with equity. Let the rivers clap. Let the hills be joyful. And Jesus said, If they should remain silent, even the stones would cry out. But they did not understand. Even the disciples, they were expecting the Messiah of the second coming. John tells us in John twelve sixteen, the disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. I find that so interesting. One, I believe this is the gift of the Holy Spirit being poured out upon the church. After Jesus had died, went into heaven, the disciples understood these things. They remembered. And that, John 14, 26, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father sends in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to remembrance all things that I said to you. So I find just a a display of the work of the Holy Spirit in the disciples' life, bringing to remembrance those things that they'd actually participated in unknowingly. And so that's the second thing that amazes me about this, because I believe today that we can get involved in things and we're doing things that can bring glory and bring praise to God, even though we have no clue. We don't even know we're doing a work of God and God's doing a work through us. And then we sit back and we said, hmm, you meant to do that? All I was doing was changing the person's tire. And you're working. (laughs) So I was talking to Bob this morning. I'm going to throw this in there. You can keep me in prayer. And uh, unintended consequences, I guess. I wrote a paper for school. You guys know this. Um, My dad was part of the Masonic Lodge, and I grew up around it. And so I wrote a paper... Horizon University about cults, and I wrote about this, and I gave it to David Fiorazzo. David had me four times on Stand Up for the Truth twice, Worldview Matters twice, and another brother out on the East Coast heard the broadcast, uh, Brian Thomas, and we've done two shows, and he asked me this week to do another two shows, which we'll record in March. Um, he said, pick a day, pick the day on a Tuesday, and he hasn't got back to me, but I picked the day. And uh, so I was talking to Bob about maybe creating a part of our webpage to have a tab where you can go to these shows, kind of a ready go-to thing. And he was telling me that he and Dana had been going to a restaurant in uh, the town next to us here, and uh, they realized that there was a Masonic Lodge right there on the strip downtown. And they're talking to the restaurant owner about the lodge and about the shows and gave him links. And the restaurant owner picked up all this material that the lodge had given to them. And he's like, threw them away. He says, all right, I know what to do with these things now. It's like they're always coming in here trying to promote the lodge. Unintended consequences. You never know what the Lord's going to do with you. So we speak. The Lord works. In the routine of our lives, as seen through the disciples in the crown surrounding Jesus at his triumphal entry, God was working out his plan through their lives, and God can do the same with us in the routine of our lives if we'd only be open in serving him. We need to know also that true peace comes only through the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. He came presenting peace. But he also wept. Now this is unique to Luke's account. It's why I chose the Gospel of Luke. As I said, the triumphal entry is recorded in all four Gospels. But this is why I I chose to teach from Luke in our chronological journey through the Gospels. Because only Luke speaks about this. 
in verses 41 and 42, it says, Now as they drew near, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known, even you, especially this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. If you had only known. Now this may sound familiar as recorded in Matthew's gospel in chapter 23. And in the timeline, we're only in chapter 21 in Matthew's gospel. But earlier in Luke's gospel, he recorded these words, Luke 13, 34 through 35, Jesus lamenting over Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, one who kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left desolate And as surely I say to you, you will not see me until that time comes when you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So Luke recorded these words prior to the triumphal entry. And then when Jesus finally descended upon Jerusalem, he cried, he wept, saying, if you had only known. I'd read recently of a dramatic picture of a wildfire sweeping through an area. And I hope this is true. I read it online. It has to be true, right? Of a fire sweeping through an area, it could have been an area like Hawaii, uh, where my son lives, because there's wild chickens everywhere. But of a mother hen being burned to death, but the chicks under her wings totally safe from the quick fire that went through. Jesus cried out, how often... I wanted to gather you under my wings. He said in this passage from Luke 19, In this your day, it was the appointed day of the Messiah's coming. The prophets had foretold of this day. The rabbis had faithfully preached about that coming day. The people had heard messages about that day. And when Jesus came the first time, the majority of them missed it. They didn't know They were unaware of the Messiah's coming. (laughs) Jesus is coming again, and preachers have been faithful to preach the second coming. And I fear the same thing will happen when he comes again. People will miss it. They will not be ready. Jesus came to offer peace, not the peace that the world gives, but the peace that can only Christ can give, everlasting peace. And sadly, many will be unaware of this peace because they're unaware of Jesus. John 16, 33, Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. Not as the world will you have, in this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And though he spoke to the people of Jerusalem in this day, it speaks to us to this day. That salvation is available to all who receive Jesus as the Savior and Lord of their life for all who accept him. Second Chronicles, Second Corinthians, sorry. Second Corinthians six two says, In an acceptable time I have heard you. In the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. And sadly, Satan continues to blind people's eyes to keep them from knowing the peace of Jesus. Our last two verses in our text today, Luke 19, 43 and 44. For days are coming upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to the ground. They will not... Leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. Now, Jesus foretelling of a event that took place in AD 70 when Titus and his Roman legions came in and destroyed Jerusalem. Titus only allowed three towers to remain when they destroyed the city because he wanted the world to see the strong forces that were destroyed 
destroyed by his army himself. Yet Jesus gives the true reason behind Jerusalem's leveling because they did not know the time of their visitation. Josephus wrote about the temple in his history, and he was a historian that lived. He, he was actually, he was maybe the first embedded reporter because he was with Titus and his army. He was a Jewish man that was writing the events of the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, and he was with Titus. And he talked about the glory of the temple in his writings, and his writings go all the way back to creation. But when he talked about the temple of Herod's temple, it says the exterior of the temple was covered with massive plates of gold, which brilliantly reflected the sun. From a distance, it looks like a snow-covered mountain, since whatever was not plated with gold was of purest white. And Titus even commanded that the temple should not be destroyed. He wanted it to remain. But just the day before Jerusalem's conquering, the Jews had set a trap for the Romans, and many of the soldiers got killed. And so when the soldiers finally came in, they were so furious with the Jews that they began a killing spree that caused the Jews to take refuge in the temple. And one of the soldiers of the Romans threw a flaming spear into the temple that caught the tapestries on fire and burnt the place. Now, history says the Jews leveled it because the gold melted down into the joints of the temple. And so the only way they could retrieve the gold was to take it apart stone by stone. But may I remind you that Jesus first said, not a stone of you would remain. Later on, this would prompt the disciples to ask, tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? But that will have to wait for another message. While Luke and Matthew have Jesus cleansing the temple after his arrival, Mark records these words, and this is found in Mark 11, 11. And Jesus went into the temple, into Jerusalem, and into the temple. And so he had looked around at all things. As the hour was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. And that's where we're going to close it out today. Jesus came, his triumphal entry. He made it to Temple Mount. He went into the temple. He had a look. And then he returned to Bethany that night. We'll pick that up in next week's teaching. Are you ready to welcome Jesus? That should be a good question for us. There was a donkey's cult that we looked at in verses 28 through 40. And I asked the question, are we prepared for our coming king? They were singing out Hosanna in the highest in verses 37 through 40. And I'd mentioned then that true peace can only come through the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ. And Jesus, as he wept over Jerusalem in verses 41 through 44, I asked the question, are you ready for the coming king? Jesus is coming again. They were unaware of his coming, but I know the only way that we can be prepared is through faith in his name. I want to just go ahead as we stand together and rehearse the ABCs of salvation. Maybe I'm saying this for a recording, or those who are watching online, or those who are here. But the only way I know that we can be prepared for the coming of Jesus is by giving our heart to him. And the ABCs of salvation is the easy way for us to remember how to share Christ with others. And I want to share these verses with you now. The A stands for admit. Admit to God that you are a sinner and seek his forgiveness. Romans 3.23 tells us for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. But in 1 John 1.9, it tells us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Have we admitted to God that we are sinners? Have we asked for forgiveness? The B is for believe. Believe in the work that Jesus did upon the cross, his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension into heaven. He has provided the way of salvation 
We need to believe in that work. In Romans 5, 8, it tells us, but God demonstrates his own love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And the C is for confess. Confess your faith in Jesus Christ. Share that faith with others. And the Bible tells us in Romans 10, verses 9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto salvation, and with the mouth confession. I said that backwards. With the heart one believes unto righteousness, with the mouth one believes unto salvation. In verse 13, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. I pray that you have received Jesus Christ. If not, may today be that day. It's the only way we can be ready for the Messiah's coming. Father, we thank you for your word that you have given us today. And I pray, Lord, that you would bless the teaching of your word. Bless it to our souls. But let it not merely be a good word that's preached from a pulpit. As your word, Lord, is being preached in many churches throughout the world today. For those, Lord, who need to know you as Savior, let it be a day of salvation where they come and meet the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Prince of peace, Jesus Christ. And Lord Jesus, we pray for us who do believe, Lord, that we would be willing vessels to serve you till you come. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.